Tonight we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Joshua. We're going to be going through um, a large section all centered around the um, battle of Jericho. It is uh, Joshua chapter 5, 13 through chapter 6, verse 27. If you're using uh, the Pew Bible, it's on page 181. This is the reading of God's Word. When Joshua, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hand, which it with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when you make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the, people will shall, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to him, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout." Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets blew continually, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 
But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in, And brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us this text to learn about you, about your miraculous deeds in delivering your people. Father, I ask that in this time you capture our hearts and minds so that we may study your text and only focus on you, that we may not be distracted by the things of this coming week or the things that have happened this day, that we remain steadfast, wholly devoted to you. Father, I ask that you work through me in order to make this text clear and impactful. And Father, I ask that you give your spirit upon me and upon this congregation to work change in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A palindrome is a uh, word that is that reads frontwards and backwards the same. Uh, a popular one is race car, or the name Hannah, or my uh, personal favorite, Taco Cat. Um, it's not it's not a real word, but it's from a game. And um, but yeah, it, it works. Anyways, a palindrome reads frontwards and backwards. And what we have here, uh, and with our text tonight, is a palindrome. Um, and you're probably like, uh, we just read it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that at all. But if you go back to Genesis 12, it is. You see, back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham to give land. And not just any land, but a very specific land, a promised land. He said, to your offspring I will give this land. The land he was referring to is the land of Canaan. And it was a promise that symbolized a kingdom where once again God's people would dwell with God, where he would tabernacle with them. Following this promise in Genesis 17, God commands Abraham and all the males of his household to be be circumcised as a sign of God's covenant promise to and with his people. 
And then after that, in Genesis 17 to Exodus 1, God is faithful to bring the entire, Israel, uh, the entire nation of Israel to a great multitude, fulfilling again a promise that God had command, uh, given to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. And that actually caused Pharaoh to become worried. And that's when we begin the account of, of Moses and God delivering the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, having Passover instituted for the first time, and then crossing the Red Sea. And that's where we get our palindrome. Because over the last sequence, uh, or the last uh, Sunday nights as we've been studying Joshua, we've been repeating these things, but in reverse order. You see, we had the crossing of the Red Sea, matches, I mean, the crossing of the Jordan, which matches the Red Sea. We had the males being circumcised. We had Passover being instituted in the land of Canaan. And so what did we begin with? We began with land. And what are we ending with? Entrance into the land. So, why, you say, why are you, why are you drawing all this out? Well, uh, for two reasons. One is personal, and one is um, for you guys. Um, so the personal reason is, when I was little, um, I would occasionally get bored during a sermon, and what would I flip to? Uh, what passage in the Bible would I flip to? I would flip to Joshua, um, because my name is Josh, and um, it is that simple. But what would I read? I would, I would read the Battle of Jericho, because I wasn't going to read, um, you know, Achan and his family. Uh, that's really sad. Um, I wanted to read about God doing miraculous things. And so I think sometimes we think about this passage just very simply, that it's just God performing a miracle and, you know, off the Israelites go. But when you take a step back and see that he's been working this all the way since Genesis 12 through generation after generation, it gives it a more full thrust. It is, it is painting a beautiful picture as opposed to just a, a small little thumbnail. That second part was for you guys. Um, the first part was for me to uh, just be back in this text. It's been wonderful to, again, study the book of Joshua. And so having that perspective, we are given three um, simple points and they're all related to, um, related to God, because I think the main focus is God, not Joshua and not the walls. So our points tonight are God's holiness, God's power, and God's faithfulness. God's holiness, God's power, and God's faithfulness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's what the seraphim cried out in Isaiah 6. God is holy and we are to pursue holiness. We know this. We, this is a theme all throughout the Bible. And yet, it's one of those things that we don't often take time to say, well, what is holiness? Well, our text tonight um, brings up holiness twice. The first time is in verse 15. Read with me. And the commander of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
This is almost an exact echo of what we saw in Exodus 3, verse 4 with Moses. God commands Moses to remove his sandals for the the ground that he is standing on is holy. And this provides our first building block. Holiness originates from God. This might seem simple, but it's critical that we start here. Because if we jump too far ahead, we then start to make it about what we can do. How we are achieving holiness. In the case of Joshua and Moses, the ground is not striving to be holy. It's not saying, oh, I'm going to be the, the best piece of desert so that I'll be holy. The same way that um, a patch of grass that is 120 yards long and 53 and a half um, yards wide is just a patch of grass until it's painted with some stripes and then becomes a football field. Holiness comes from the Lord. Additionally, because holiness comes from the Lord, he decides what is holy and what is not holy. Another way of saying this is God sets apart those and certain things that are to be holy to himself and things that are not holy. We see this very clearly in chapter 6, verses 17 and 19, where he's saying that Rahab and her family will be saved, set apart. And the precious metals will be set apart. But everything else will be completely destroyed. Being holy is being set apart. God sets those things apart. Holiness comes from the Lord, and he sets apart what is to be holy. Again, thinking about the events that have led up to this, circumcision, a sign from God to be set apart. Passover, Passover is a a reminder that God set apart the people of Israel apart from the, the plagues of Egypt, that they were covered by the Lamb's blood, that they were to be holy, separate from Egypt. Circumcision reminds that they are not to be like the pagan nations. They are set apart, holy. In our modern vernacular, the term holy is often neglected. But we must not lose sight of what it is to be holy because as Christians, it is our identity. God says to his people in Leviticus 20, verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. We are God's, and we are, we are God's people, and we are to be holy. Now, is this a, a rallying cry for works righteousness in the sense that be holy, be perfect? No, of course not. Because holiness comes from the Lord. To drive this home even more, I want us to look at verse 21 and 24. You see, the Lord commands the Israelite army to completely annihilate Jericho, except for Rahab and the precious metals. You don't think... God could have used any of the livestock or the grain, could have set up shop for his people in Jericho. It was unholy. It was to be destroyed. 
In God's holy and perfect judgment, he set apart Israel and not the other nations. He sets his people apart not because of their own personal holiness or righteousness, based on what they do, but because of his abounding love and grace. The Apostle Paul sums us up in his letter to the Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And our holiness is only connected and available through Christ. It's imparted through Christ's perfect obedience, death, and life. And for those who call upon him as their Savior, holiness comes from the Lord. Our second point, the power of the Lord. The power of the Lord is on full display in this text. He works miraculous deeds. And we know from previous texts that the Lord has been faithful in, in battles, and yet now the people of Israel are coming across something they haven't come across, a fortified city. And in my, in my tactical experience is um, limited to the board game Risk, um, so it's not very um, good. Uh, but at least I know that what God prescribed for them is unconventional. That it is not what I would have recommended at all. Circling the enemy 13 times in total. I mean, the only thing that I could think of that would be beneficial is that you could maybe say, well, you know, the south side seems to be a little weaker, a little less defended. Maybe we could attack from that side. You know, you have reconnaissance. But even then, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage because the enemy is seeing you too. They're able to count. Okay, they have X amount of soldiers. They're carrying around the, the ark. You know, that must be something. You know, and so it's, it's giving away every element of surprise that you have. And there's no mention of weapons or siege material, ladders, nothing. Circle, blow horns, and the, and the walls will fall. And I do want to take a moment to talk about these walls because I think it adds to the story. Uh, from what archaeologists have been able to discover, these walls were kind of a two-part system, if you will. The first part was a, um, an embankment at a 35-degree angle that stretched for 20 feet. And on top of that was a 13-foot wall. And so when you think about how you would set up a ladder on a 35-degree angle, it's pretty much impossible. As um, some secular sources write, these walls were intended to protect the settlement and its water supply from human intruders. Though weapons of the hunt had been used for centuries, the walls of Jericho represent the earliest technology uncovered by archaeologists that can be ascribed unequivocally to purely military purposes. And yet, the power of God is still on full display. When God asked Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? The answer is no. Or as the, the children's catechism says, can God do all things? The answer is yes. God can do all his holy will. So what are military tactics or advanced siege weapons to an all-powerful God? 
not necessary. Better yet, what is an impregnable, first of its kind, daunting fortress to an all-powerful God? Nothing. To really put this in perspective, how did the walls fall down? I think I just have just assumed that there was an earthquake of some sort. Maybe it's just veggie tales, you know, kind of put that in my head, but that's what I assumed. And yet the text is silent on it. It says the walls fell down flat. And is this because that there was no word for earthquake back then? No, that's not true, because the Old Testament alone is filled with um, things like the shaking of the earth, the word earthquake itself, shuddering of the earth, the ground shaking. There's plenty of examples of earthquake-type things. And I think that's even more cool, because when you think about what could an all-powerful God do to these walls— well, one thing, he, could, he would know exactly where it was weak or the cornerstones and just make them dissolve. I mean, it's mud bricks. Or better yet, I was thinking about my daughter, Elsie. She's got those oversized Legos, and so she'll build up kind of a tower, and yet she can just go and knock it over. When we think about an all-powerful God, he can just knock over walls. It doesn't have to be an earthquake. It doesn't have to be something that we are able to comprehend because his power is incomprehensible. Our God is all-powerful. And what's even better is that it's really not about the walls. This is the God we worship and rejoice in knowing. That's the amazing part. That we get to know this God and that he knows us as children. Don't separate God's power and your relationship with him. I think often we we only are able to, it's hard for our minds to picture God the Father and then God the Almighty God. It's hard for us to bring those together in our relationship with him. But that's who we worship. That's who we will stand before. He is mighty to save, and how wonderful are his deeds. But there are moments when it seems like, God, I know you're all-powerful, but it really does not feel like it. And that's where our final point rests, God's faithfulness. Because sometimes we may know that God can do anything and everything, and yet it does not feel like it. He can make walls tumble and kingdoms fall. But right now, it doesn't feel like, God, you're acting at all. Whether it's injury, whether it's a death, whether it's financial loss, losing a job, children. It can feel like, God, I feel like I've just kind of slipped through your cracks. I know you can do all things, but you're just not. But God is faithful. And that's why I started talking about Genesis 12. Because he was faithful to bring them into the land, as we saw. He was even faithful to say, as the text says, I have given you this city even before the walls fall. But I think the best example of God's faithfulness is about somebody we've already talked about, 
Rahab. In a story that's all about Joshua and walls falling, Rahab is mentioned three times extensively. Rahab is looked after. God is faithful to Rahab. And I want us to take a moment to put ourselves in Rahab's shoes because it's not one that's very envious when you think about it. Say it's Monday morning, the horns are going, Israel's army has just started their first circle around, and so Rahab knows, okay, they're here. Get all the family in the house, in the wall, the, in the home in the wall, get everyone in here. And then the, Israel goes back into their camp. Tuesday, same thing. Horns are going. Get the family back in here. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I mean, I'm sure there was an aunt or something asking questions like, are you sure this is the plan? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, but imagine also these horns are going off incessantly the entire day. You could think about the World Cup when we were introduced to Vuvuzelas. I mean, that's my best kind of understanding of what these horns may have sounded like. I mean, even at this point, Rahab's wondering, were they supposed to reach out to me? Like, I mean, it is not a place that you want to be. And then Sunday, they encircle six times. Now the house is in full panic. I mean, Rahab must be, I've, I've been forgotten about. I have sealed not only my death, but my family's death and my entire city's death. I've been forgotten. And I think in the most ironic part about this entire stretch is that where are they living? They're living in the walls. And those are the things that are come, come tumbling down when this shout comes out. And yet somehow, miraculously, in God's providence and sovereignty and faithfulness, her entire family is saved. And so when you have those moments of, God, I don't know where you are, and I know you're all-powerful, he saved Rahab and the things that were the weakest. It, it may not work out the way that we want it to, and the way that makes sense. I'm looking out, and I see people that I know have had hard times and struggles, But God is faithful to save, save Rahab. And he has brought Christ so that even in this life it does not work out. You are saved. And that's where I want to leave us is that you have Christ who has redeemed you by his blood and has been faithful. Or you can trust in the instruments of this world, those walls. And I hope and pray that we choose Christ each and every day because we serve a God that is holy, we serve a God that is all-powerful, and we serve a God that is faithful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for proving over and over that you are mighty to save. 
that in your holiness you have chosen us, even though there is nothing redeemable in us. Father, I, we stand amazed at your power and your strength. And Father, we stand astounded, bowing before you at your faithfulness, even as we run away. I give all this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.